This is Josh Barrow, and welcome to Left, Right, and Center, your civilized yet provocative antidote to the self-contained opinion bubbles that dominate political debate. It is the second week of August, and this week Joe Biden got a running mate, California Senator Kamala Harris. The Biden campaign managed to build a lot of public suspense before settling on the most obvious choice, a choice that fits well within the Biden campaign's strategy of avoiding unnecessary risks and trying to appeal to as broad a swath of the electorate as possible. Unlike a lot of the other candidates that Biden considered, Harris has a big national profile and the typical level of experience that you would expect of someone picked to be vice president or president. She's been vetted through the media and her strengths and weaknesses as a candidate are well known, so most likely no surprises here. Harris alienates few potential Biden voters, unlike other possible picks who might have been seen as too far to the left or too close to the center. She's also a historic pick. She would be the first woman to serve as vice president, and she's the first black woman and first Asian American person ever on a major party national ticket. This isn't a contradiction, but I think it says something interesting about where we are as a country, that she is both a historical pick in this way and also the safest, most consensus candidate that Biden could have chosen. To talk about that, I want to bring in our left, right, and center panel. As always, I'm your center. I'm joined by Megan McArdle, columnist of the Washington Post on the right, and on the left, Dorian Warren, president of the Center for Community Change. Hello. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Dorian, what do you make of the choice of Kamala Harris? I think it's fascinating and exciting uh, from a Democratic and, and progressive and left perspective because it, it shows first that Democrats aren't making the same mistake they did in 2016 by attempting to appeal to what we might think of as a non-existent swing voter by taking no risks is essentially what Hillary Clinton did. Instead, this pick shows that I think the Democratic Party and, jo- and former Vice President Joe Biden in particular are recognizing that Americans first want leadership that reflects the diversity of the country and that this could potentially be a mobilizing pick for base voters. I want to go back to something you said at the top, Josh, around the most obvious pick. Let's just remember four years ago, I don't think we would say this is the most obvious pick. So it's sort of a side of how much at least the Democratic Party has shifted over the last four years and frankly, the country. And then I think on the other side, in terms of the Republican Party and the Trump campaign, uh, you know, I think they didn't have a strategy for her. And so I think what we're now seeing is they're bumbling around trying to you know, use all sorts of epithets and birtherism 2.0 and cast her as non-citizen. So there's just a lot of mishigas that's happening on the other side, because I don't think they expected this conventional wisdom pick to be the pick. Dorian, I thought one thing that was interesting about this choice, because the president said that he was surprised uh, that Biden picked Kamala Harris, which is a little weird because it was she was presumably leading the VP veep stakes the, the whole way through. But I think that Trump looks at this and th- there's a significant risk that Harris overshadows Biden on the ticket in certain ways. Certainly Republicans already, one of the things they're saying about it is that, you know, it's really, really she's going to be running the show. And then it's this weird double thing where she's going to be running the show and then she herself is a puppet of AOC and the left and that sort of thing. But it's the certainly she, she has such a high profile. Uh, and there are certain Democrats who are also eager for that sort of narrative, basically that, you know, people who weren't that eager about Biden in the primary, uh, maybe, you know, they, they see this as, you know, Harris is the, is the thing that is motivating them here. And so I think that, that Trump, but frankly, a lot of other politicians would have looked at that and said, you know, I want a pick that really says that I'm in charge. I don't want people to be able to say uh, that I'm overshadowed by my vice presidential candidate. And I think it's interesting that Biden wasn't uh, wasn't put off by that and went ahead and chose her. I think it shows a certain maturity. And if you think about what Trump is predictably doing, he's calling her mean. He's, he's using all his favorite sexist attacks. He's sort of like the boy who cried wolf. You know, he said these things about so many women, nasty women. It's just a rerun of the last time a woman pissed him off. And Biden picking Harris shows a level of maturity and willingness to work with those who have differences. 
compared to themselves. As we remember, Harris criticized Biden on his shortcomings. And instead of whining and crying about it like the, the crybaby in the White House, he chose to work with her and pick her, knowing the full risk that she might overshadow him. I think we should all be taking notes of that kind of political maturity. The other point here is, for all the attacks that are going to come on Kamala Harris, on Senator Harris, on the one hand, there, you, you could make the case that, you know, there's a question, empirical question. Will she be, will she increase turnout among particularly black voters or not? On the other hand, the more Trump attacks her, the more there will be a rallying effect around her. Megan, what do you make of this pick? Um, I'm not actually sure what she really brings to the ticket, except not scaring off suburbanites, maybe. Um, you know, the thing about Kamala Harris is that if you look at her record, it's pretty clear that she doesn't really stand for anything in particular except election. She's very interested in getting elected and doing whatever she thinks will make voters happy. And you saw this in the campaign where she was for Medicare for all and then she was against it. And it was clear she didn't really care about Medicare for all. What she thought was that she was assuaging the the Sanders supporters and that she might be able to bring them on board by standing for it. She immediately tried to walk it back when it turned out that, in fact, like this scared the hell out of suburban voters. Um, and I think that's been a pattern in her, in her career where she's a tough prosecutor right up to the point where that becomes politically inconvenient. And then she's like, well, I didn't mean any of that. That was a mistake. Um, and I think the problem for Biden is that he's already got those voters sewn up. He's got the the centrist voters who just want someone who's basically a Democrat, but like reasonably within the party platform. She doesn't bring any of the activists on board. They're not very fond of her. Um, and, you know, I think that, frankly, it doesn't matter that much. Um, I think he can get elected no matter who he nominates. I think he could have gotten elected with Bernie Sanders or, or uh, well, not AOC. She's not eligible. But, you know, someone like that on the ticket um, because Trump is so bad. But I think, you know, actuarially, the, the truth is that if Biden goes for two terms, actuarially, it is more likely than not that she will succeed him in the presidency. Um, and that means that this this pick matters more than it does for a normal president. You know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about the vice presidential pick because it's the last bit of drama to be wrung out of the election until November. Um, but the fact is that it's not really clear that vice presidents do that much for campaigns. Um, they're just someone you have to have on the ticket. It's nice to, to make a unity vote, but it's not really clear that she's, I doubt, frankly, that she's going to have any more power in the, uh, Biden administration than Biden did in the Obama administration. Um, and I think she is going to spend a lot of time, uh, waiting for something to happen to him maybe, and doing a lot of speeches, uh, but otherwise keeping a much lower profile than perhaps Kamala Harris would herself prefer. Dorian, what do you make of what, what Megan said there about it being unclear exactly where Kamala Harris stands ideologically is something that we heard from a lot of her critics within the Democratic Party during the primary. Do you buy that? I know that your organization has done some initiatives with her in the past. Where is Kamala Harris? How progressive is she? She has a record. People score records in Congress. You can look it up, Google it. She's a very liberal senator, I will say, and some people will critique her for that. She's been out there leading the charge around, frankly, immigrant rights, around low-income people, It's particularly with her Lyft Act, which is a, a, it would expand the earned income tax credit, which outside of Social Security is one of the most significant anti-poverty programs in American history. So it would expand the EITC, the earned income tax credit, to provide Americans with 
direct cash uh, monthly, and it would expand who's eligible. So it's a way to essentially provide an income floor for the poorest of Americans going pretty far up into the middle class. So she has a record, just to say. She has a record. We could all Google it. What's interesting, though, is I I do think none of the old rules apply. Like, we could have said the same thing about Donald Trump in 2016 and in the primary. Like, oh, he can't win because of all these political norms. He shattered the norms. The norms of our political rules have been shattered. And in terms of a consistency of what she stands for, Trump also has a problem. If you remember, he donated $6,000 to Kamala Harris when he was for her. So did Ivanka Trump. Now everybody's against her. So all the right has is birtherism reborn. Smear her as not being a citizen. Come after her with nasty ad hominem attacks, calling her a nasty woman. This is not a debate about ideas from the right and from the Trump campaign. It is a personal attack campaign. We, we should acknowledge she's well in the Senate. She has sponsored four bills, two of which involve memorials, uh, one of which involves uh, how we count deaths from emergencies, and the other one waived fees for victim passport fees for victims of national emergencies. What she is most famous for in the Senate is, in fact playing tough in hearings, right? Acting like a prosecutor, going after Brett Kavanaugh. That's where she has actually made her name. And- well, then let's talk, let's talk about the issues. Let's talk about her record on, on criminal justice. Because, I mean, Dorian, when I asked you about her being progressive and you go to some of her uh, economic policy agenda items, this was a, a key uh, area in the primary where she, where she sort of took, uh, took heat from both sides because of the different aspects of her record uh, where is she, is she a tough-on-crime prosecutor or is she a criminal justice reformer? Is she both? What do you make of, of that record? Is that a progressive record? And does she have any issues? When, when you talk about that, you know, this, the, this is a choice where, the, where Biden was not going to sort of hew to the center and try to appeal to swing voters. Does Kamala Harris have a problem that matches some of the problem that Biden had on the left in the primary where he's not trusted by progressive activists on certain issues? Is she trusted on those issues? I think that is her biggest weakness. Let's just put it out there. And it's not, you know, it's common knowledge. She was a very aggressive prosecutor as San Francisco DA and as the California Attorney General. And I would say now is the moment to turn that weakness into a strength. And I actually think her strength as a prosecutor does intimidate the Trump campaign and the right because they can't just say she's a soft on crime person, which is what they'd love to do. It's partly why they've been bumbling in their strategy this week once she was announced because they don't know what to do with her. So I would say, how does she make that criticism, that valid criticism by many people on the left and especially people in the movement for black lives? Okay, that has been your record. You were really, really law and order, you're really aggressive. Now, how do you transform that to say, look, since she was a prosecutor, there has been an incredible movement for criminal justice reform that has emerged. How do you now say, that was my record, it was a different time, I have seen the light, and I'm going to be the biggest advocate of criminal justice reform going forward? That would mobilize particularly black voters in this moment. Megan, I think Dorian is is right about the the response to Kamala from Republicans being a little bit flailing in the past week, and I and I think this is a key example area. It's they can't decide do they want to attack her as soft on crime or as someone who was too tough on crime. And the thing is, if you put both of those attacks out at the same time, you can sort of make her look like a person in the sensible center. Uh, you can, but you can also make her look like what she is, which is someone who was tough on crime when she was running voters like that. Uh, and so she was tough on crime when it was rewarding in the, at the ballot box. Um, when she was, as soon as she left that office, she stopped being tough on crime. And this is sort of like the Kerry, John Kerry, you know, uh, I voted for the, the bill before I, I voted against it. 
Um, and I think that really does describe her political career pretty, pretty accurately. But again, I don't think it matters that much. I think that, you know, this is something that we're going to focus on for a few days. But attacking Biden's vice presidential choice is just fundamentally not going to move the dial for voters. I want to talk a little bit about the post office because the president appointed a political supporter to be postmaster general. And since he did that, there's been a lot of concern about changes he implemented nominally to save money that are delaying mail delivery in certain places. The post office has instructed employees to avoid overtime and to let unsorted mail sit for delivery the following day instead of adjusting their schedules to sort it. The president has continued to attack mail-in voting and has said the post office doesn't have the financial resources to handle a surge of mail-in ballots, even as he blocks Democratic proposals for financial assistance to the post office. And this has a lot of Democrats alarmed about the possibility that his actions will lead to undelivered and rejected ballots in an election where Democrats are especially likely to vote by mail. Dorian, how serious a concern is this? It's a very serious concern. And it goes to the broader discussion of when you can't win on the issues, when you can't win fair and square in a competitive election, what do you do? You either lie or you cheat or you delegitimize. And so this is a very explicit attempt, and it's not like it's secret. The president himself has said, as well as his advisor, Larry Kudlow, his economic advisor, why they don't like voting rights, why they want to defund the post office, because they think that for more people to have the chance to vote by mail, it will disadvantage them in the competition in terms of the election. And what we know is, one, it was fine. Vote by mail was fine when Trump got to do it. Now, all of a sudden, there's worries. And second, the empirical research shows that vote by mail is a bi- is bipartisan behavior. I mean, the Republican Party is not even unified on this question. The Ohio governor and other officials in the Republican Party want expanded vote by mail. The president and the White House and his advisors don't want it. They want to defund the post office. So this is just a blatant attempt to try to rig the rules because they cannot win on the substance of their ideas and their governance and their policies. Megan, does that sound right to you? No, not exactly. Uh, There's a lot going on here. So I I would say that the first thing is that Republicans have a longstanding antipathy to the post office because it is a sucking chest wound in in the federal budget. It's not as bad as the big entitlement programs, but... Um, They underfunded their pensions. And now, uh, year by year, their revenue is not going anywhere. Their main business, their most lucrative business was first class mail. Um, And it's to a first approximation. No one wants to send letters to like grandma anymore. Um, And so, you know, that has been a long term uh, Republican priority. It is a difficult lift to get them to increase funding for the post office right now. The second thing is that, you know, there is an element of Trump's, uh, what Trump said the other day, you know, Trump's syntax is not entirely, there's a way to listen to that. It's equally plausible to hear him saying, you know, they're insisting on this money for vote by mail, but I don't think we should do vote by mail. So no, I'm not going to fund something I don't think we should do. The third thing is that the media and Democrats are primed to go off at like the dark night of fascism is descending every time Trump says anything. And look, I think some of the things he said recently, incredibly disturbing. His 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 suggestion that we delay the, the election, I'm not saying that Trump doesn't have authoritarian instincts. I do think that American institutions are robust to that. And I doubt that the funding for the post office is really the, what is standing between us and fascism. The fourth thing I would say... Um, is that this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous on so many levels. First of all, 
um, you know, as as Dorian says, there's not any clear partisan divide in vote by mail. It may even slightly benefit Republicans. So if re- Republicans are trying to do this to do voter suppression, it's the worst possible vehicle to do that. But the other thing is this. To, go, to, to zoom out just a little bit, we're in the middle of a pandemic. People are home more than ever before. They, they're getting stuff shipped to them. They need the post office. It should be a no If you can find money to do a, a payroll tax, not cut, but deferment, then you can find $25 billion for the post office. This is really stupid. And the fact that Republicans have chosen this hill to die on, I think does speak uh, to the fact that they are really bad at running the election, that Trump has left them in such a... a bad way that he is unable to focus on real issues and real campaign topics and here is where I, I do agree with Dorian is that like why are we talking about this why aren't we talking about actual issues why isn't Donald Trump trying to actually do something about the pandemic instead of fixating on the stupid post office Dorian I I take Megan's point that I I think the president and Republicans have multiple motivations here I'm sure the president views it as a positive uh with the, with the question of whether to sort of squeeze and starve the post office that he thinks it might interfere in an election where whatever the historical trends are you certainly see more Democrats telling pollsters that they intend to vote by mail in this election uh than Republicans but I, I I'm I'm sort of with Megan in that I I doubt the efficacy of this as a strategy to actually affect the election outcomes in part because these issues where it's like you know Republicans are trying to stop you from voting have historically been a galvanizing thing for Democrats trying to to build turnout and I'm wondering about the extent to which the the you know the the national furor over this that I think will only build going into the fall as people keep noticing their their mail being late and obviously elections are are far from the the core function of the post office and it matters in in its own right uh, if people aren't getting their mail like they're supposed to I I just I I see this as something that is likely to backfire politically on Republicans for doing it well that's the problem is I think it's a stupid strategy because it will backfire. And here's the part um, that's that's troubling. It's President Trump has been saying the quiet part of the strategy out loud. That's the problem. So he tweeted, quote, mail in voting in 2020 would lead to the end of our great Republican Party. I don't know how much more clarity you need for that. He told Politico that lawsuits filed by his campaign and Republican allies to block expanded access, that if they didn't win, it would be the biggest threat to his reelection. He went on Fox Business and said in an interview, and I quote, now they need that money in order to have the post office work so it can take all of these millions and millions of ballots. But if they don't get those items, that means you can't have universal mail-in voting because they're not equipped to have it. Like he's saying the quiet part out loud. And it's, it's just mind blowing to me. Like there is no defense. There is no defense of this. And in fact, it's going to backfire. When I talk to black voters in the South, they are planning to stand in line for hours on Election Day because what the president has done is created such mistrust of mail-in voting that for lots of black voters who are really, really motivated by his attacks on the post office, by his attacks on Kamala Harris in particular, they are motivated. So good luck with this strategy. Like, Keep doubling down on defunding the post office and see what happens on Election Day. Let's take a break. I'll be back with Dorian Warren of the Center for Community Change and Megan McArdle of The Washington Post to talk about the congressional stalemate over coronavirus aid and the president's executive orders that are supposed to get around it. This is Left, Right and Center. You're hearing from our Left, Right and Center, and we want to hear from you, too. Tweet us at LRC KCRW and download the free KCRW app to listen to Left, Right and Center on demand. You know the Sugar Hill Gang for Rapper's Delight. 
one of the first ever rap songs. But when you consider the greatest rap albums of all time, it's hard to imagine anyone mentioning their first full length that dropped a year after in 1980. But sometimes, legacy is not about the spark itself, but about the flame that spark causes. The Sugar Hill Gang on Lost Notes, 1980, with me, Hanif Abduraki. Find it wherever you get podcasts. Back again with Left, Right, and Center, I'm Josh Barrow of New York Magazine. On the right is Megan McArdle, columnist of the Washington Post. On the left is Dorian Warren, president of the Center for Community Change. At the end of last week, with Republicans and Democrats unable to come to terms on a new coronavirus aid package, the president signed four executive orders that he characterized as an alternative way to support the economy without congressional action. At least one of these orders is likely to do more or less what is advertised, suspending payments and interest accruals on many kinds of student loans through the end of the year. Another order, purporting to extend a moratorium on evictions, does little beyond telling federal agencies to explore what they might be able to do in this area. Then there are two orders that supposedly entail sweeping presidential action in tax and spending areas ordinarily reserved to Congress's power. The president says he is suspending the payroll tax for the last four months of the year, even though Congress expressed approximately zero interest in a payroll tax holiday. He also says he will take tens of billions of dollars of unused disaster relief funds to pay for a partial extension of enhanced unemployment benefits, with a $300 weekly enhancement instead of $600. But there are major legal and practical barriers to these two policies actually happening. To discuss those, Indy Dutta joins us now. Indy is co-executive director of the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality. Hi, Indy. Hi, Josh. I'm delighted to be here. So let's start with the unemployment order. Administration officials have been saying that people on unemployment whose benefits dropped sharply at the end of July will be getting these $300 weekly enhancements pretty soon. Is that true? Uh, look, this executive order is in many ways in ill-conceived. It's grossly insufficient. Um, it, it's ill-targeted, uh, uh, excluding some of the lowest paid workers and some of the least generous states. Um, and I think it's probably uh, illegal. I think that you'll see some states uh, try uh, with all the challenges they're already facing, getting out unemployment benefits, pandemic unemployment assistance benefits. Um, so uh, I would expect some payments to some workers in some states. Uh, but this is just a tiny, tiny fraction of uh, what we could have gotten through a bipartisan agreement. But so I guess there's two key issues here. One is legality, and, and that issue may go unresolved because it's not clear who is going to sue, whether somebody who has actually standing to, to be heard in the courts to sue to block this. So it might we might not ever know if it was illegal. The administration may be able to just do it anyway. But there are also these these uh, these administrative issues that, that you allude to, that it's already been difficult for state unemployment agencies to process changes to unemployment uh, benefits rules during a time when so many more people than normal are claiming unemployment benefits. A lot of states have been basically saying that they, they can't implement this or that they don't know if they'll be able to implement it. My understanding is this is different from the way the last one worked. It would sort of require states to set up a new program. And so even if they try to do it, how, how quickly is that something that they can do? Oh, that's right, Josh. Um, look, the administration has had to uh, jump through a lot of hoops and uh, sort of twist uh, aspects of the Stafford Act, which essentially governs disaster uh, benefits. And uh, in doing so, it has put forward a program that is absolutely uh, unprecedented. Uh, it, uh, when we talk about uh, putting aside the question of whether it's legal or not, um, I think one of the striking aspects of the administration's executive order is that uh, they quite clearly violate some aspects of the law 
but then are trying to see if they can not quite violate other aspects of the law. Uh, but when they saw that states were unlikely to comply, for example, with the requirement of a 25% match from states, um, this administration started bending over backwards to find ways to get uh, states to participate. But at the end of the day, the administration has made clear that states can't essentially use their unemployment workers right now. So these are the folks already running uh, pandemic unemployment assistance and the regular unemployment insurance program, unless they um, use them for overtime hours. So you can't have them just sort of work as they would otherwise, and also process uh, claims for this new program. Um, you'd either have to hire new workers, um, engage workers who aren't otherwise uh, working on unemployment benefits, or um, use these workers for overtime hours. So that alone is going to be challenging, never mind the fact that several states, I think, are going to struggle with the match requirement. Uh, Megan, didn't Republicans used to oppose this sort of expansion of executive power? Uh, yes. <laughs> and it turns out that they only oppose it when they don't hold the presidency. I know that all of our listeners are going to be completely shocked, just as they are probably completely shocked to realize that Democrats who really, really enthusiastically endorsed Obama's really expansive and novel use of executive orders suddenly think that this is a really bad idea. Um, the principled position, obviously, is that executive orders are a lousy way to do policy. Um, the fact is that for a bunch of reasons, including congressional gridlock, um, it's not just congressional gridlock over the past, you know, the, since Nixon, we've been arguing about uh, the, the expansion of executive power in the United States, and it has waxed and waned over the years. But I think when you look at the drawbacks of it, it's not just that we, you know, the Constitution gives Congress this power um, and Congress should use it. It's that if you look at the, the kind of hacks that, that both Obama and now Trump had to take in order to make these things even vaguely constitutional, like the way deferring the payroll tax is pointless, but it's the only way you can do it by executive order. So he's doing it. Um, and I think that it, it goes to a, a broader problem, which is that Congress, because Congress is now turning over so fast, because it changes hands every few years, no one in Congress ever wants to make a deal. Uh, they would much rather outsource uh, to executives of their own party so that they never have to take responsibility for anything that happens, and then spend a lot of time sort of grandstanding and hoping that someday they will have control of the White House, both houses of Congress, and then they can do everything they want instead of taking half a loaf by doing a deal with the opposition now. It's completely poisonous. It has led us to this point. Uh, we need to find a way to walk back from it, but I don't think we're going to anytime soon. Dorian, I think the Democratic response to these executive orders has been interesting in that, in that Democrats in Congress have, have almost exclusively emphasized the insufficiency uh, of these orders, that they're not really going to provide the help that they're supposed to provide, that the benefit is not large enough. Uh, they're not intending to sue to block the president from from usurping what is supposed to be a congressional power. And I'm wondering what you make of that strategy. I mean, obviously, they don't want to be seen as opposed to action to help people that the president is trying to take. Uh, but it does seem to me like it's, you know, the, the, do, do we really want Democrats signing on to the idea that the president could do this sort of thing and just that it wasn't good enough? Well, this is where I probably disagree a little bit with Megan in terms of the expansion of executive power, because I don't think it is. I think this is performance art. It's symbolic and it's empty. And that's not a real solution, frankly. And I think that's the Democrats' position, is to really beg the question, okay, President Trump signed these executive orders. When we get to election day, there's a very simple question that Ronald Reagan taught us. Are you better off 
now than you were a couple months ago? And if the answer is no, people are going to be really pissed and angry. I think that's really the case on two aspects of this. One is his proposal to channel $44 billion for disaster, from disaster relief to cover the funding um, to states who have to provide the rest in terms of this new unemployment insurance system. Oh, my goodness. Isn't it? I could have sworn it was the height of hurricane season right now. So you're going to channel that money away <laughs> from people who are going to need it as hurricanes hit the coast? That's that's really smart politics. Yeah, good luck with that. And then second, and I know we're going to get to the eviction moratorium. That's just a study. That's a study bill. Basically, it's a study. It's going to do nothing to prevent millions of people from being evicted. So it's it's begging the question, are you better off on Election Day in November than you were in August when he signed these executive orders? Let's talk a little bit about the payroll tax. Uh, the president has been characterizing this as a, as a payroll tax cut. He's been saying that he's going to terminate the payroll tax, which finances Social Security and a good chunk of Medicare. Uh, Indy, what is the actual effect of this order going to be? Because my understanding is that it allows employers to delay payment of the employee side of the payroll tax, which could theoretically increase people's paychecks. But there are certain reasons to suspect that employers might be reluctant to actually take up that offer and do it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, there's a lot of reason to doubt that employers want to deal with the administrative headache. Uh, Ultimately, they're legally liable for paying the taxes. What happens if a worker separates from employment? Between now and the end of the year, uh, you know, the employers typically don't have easy access to um, engage that uh, former employee. Uh, So I think this is going to be um, a really chaotic um, experience for any employer who chooses to take it up. And, you know, it's also got uh, a limit on um, which workers can essentially um, be opted in uh, right now by the employers, although, uh, you know, some of the employer groups are even pushing for workers to have that option. So there's an income threshold. So it's not even all your workers. Um, uh, But, you know, when you think about the impacts, uh, really, if it's if the money is paid back promptly, it would be a a minimal, uh, but nevertheless, some potential impact on Social Security. Uh, trust funds um, with the uh, you know earnings otherwise on interest that the money would have garnered during the period that the taxes were deferred, but um, the real risk in many ways is the long run uh, risk from the promise you mentioned, right? Where the president said that um, if reelected, um, he's not going to use the payroll tax anymore to finance Social Security. That tax almost certainly, when you uh, think back to FDR's wisdom in putting it in place, um, has helped protect the program um, from attacks. It helps people uh, feel like they've paid in um, in a meaningful sense and uh, it, that they deserve those benefits. Uh, they uh, worked or were in a working household that put in the necessary time um, and thus uh, should get those benefits. So I think that there um, is a real uh, risk now that's um, relatively modest, but a big risk uh, going forward. Yeah, Dorian, this is why I would contest your idea that this isn't really an, an expansion of executive power here, because I think, you know, with I think it is a, a very large assertion of executive power to say, I'm going to take tens of billions of dollars that were appropriated for one program and use them for a different purpose. And here, I think, you know, I think we're going to be saved on the payroll tax thing by some of those implementation difficulties where, you know, if employers are afraid that if they don't send the tax now and the tax is still legally due next year, that they're going to be on the hook for paying it. But if the president was able to set up a, a 
a more clever, more successful way of getting people to actually withhold this tax, it would create a huge mess next year. Uh, and there would be significant political pressure to forgive a lot of the taxes uh, that were supposed to be legally collected, uh, even though he wasn't able to get Congress to actually pass a law cutting the tax. And so it would seem to me that it would set a precedent that if there was a tax that a president didn't like, he could just find ways to not collect it and essentially override Congress on the rules on what tax law should be. So I think this is I think this is a really substantial expansion of what the executive thinks that the executive can do. I can imagine certain ways that Democrats might use it toward their own ends if they were in office. But I, I think it's, it's something that people in Congress should probably be more uncomfortable about than they are. So, okay, on this point, Josh and Megan, I'm persuaded. So on this aspect of the executive orders, Yes, this is an expansion. On others, I do not think it is when we get to eviction moratorium. But at the end of the day, I think this is bad politics. Like it's 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 the most mediocre, incompetent political strategy I can imagine because you're there's two things here. One is how does this help people who are unemployed and don't have a job and therefore don't right? They can't pay payroll tax or benefit from the payroll tax lifting. That doesn't solve the problem of millions of people who don't have a job. Second, Oh, my God, you're going to actually touch the third rail of politics. I can't imagine a better mobilizing set of stories, especially for elders who love Social Security. There's a way for Democrats to spin this as a direct attack on the sanctity of this program that is the most successful anti-poverty program for elderly Americans in our history. Go for it. I would I would use this is like political gold for me if I'm running a candidacy for president, for instance. So just on the politics of it, it is the dumbest thing I could ever imagine. So where does all of this leave us? Uh, The Senate has left town for about a month without a deal. Uh, They're going to come back in mid-September, and so there will be a conversation again about whether a relief package is necessary. The White House's line has been that we did these orders, and that's the substitute for the relief package, and it's going to provide meaningful effects for people. And so I'm I'm wondering, Indy, what what you think that political environment is going to look like in mid-September? Presumably, the vast majority of people on unemployment will not be getting this partial replacement of the enhancement that they lost that they were collecting until July. I, I think that the vast majority of workers will not see their paychecks changed by this supposed change to the payroll tax. So when does it sink in that we haven't had a new relief package? And does that create the political pressure uh, for Congress to try to come together again and pass a law? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I I think um, a lot of times what policymakers are waiting for is specific data releases like the employment situation, right? At the beginning of uh, every month, you find out um, best estimates from the Bureau of Labor Statistics um, about sort of what happened with jobs. Um, I think that um, there's other data that are going to start coming out that are going to show um, growth in evictions, um, you know, maybe growth in growth in debt, credit card debt, right? Um, so it, what's What's striking here, though, is not only um, is there really no defense at this point of the eviction executive order, but even where the you might say that the executive order is going to help some folks, um, that's a student loan issue, um, a lot of folks are left out. And there's a lot of unity um, in that community, I know, around making sure that you get the bipartisan legislative deal you need. So I think that you're going to see a lot less um a lot less of a sort of um, acknowledgement from folks that they're really benefiting. Um, remember, we're talking about $300. That's a 50% cut in the $600 weekly benefit increase. Um, that seemed like maybe uh, the worst deal you might get um, when you look at the negotiations uh, since the Democrats passed the HEROES Act, right, with the $600. So 
I think that and the fact that people um, are going to realize that the 44 billion at best is going to be several weeks rather than through the year, um, it's going to put a lot of pressure on Congress to uh, come back and have some negotiation. Um, but, you know, the challenge with politics is uh, everyone's affected really by who they interact with. I mean, you've got the White House's economic policy advisors uh, saying, look, I get 10 CEOs calling me every day complaining about this benefit. Well, that's who, you know, has uh, Larry Kudlow's phone number, right? Um, and so the question is, will, you know, Mitch McConnell, will um, others, uh, especially on the Republican side, um, feel like they have to do something? Um, because uh, I think then the Democrats have already said they've used the term halfway, right? Speaker Pelosi has said, meet us halfway. So she's come out and said, we're not insisting on the HEROES Act. We, we want to negotiate on an overall package. It may not be $3.4 trillion, but let's let's negotiate. Uh, let's leave that there. Indy Dutta is co-executive director of the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality. Indy, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I have been talking with Megan McArdle of The Washington Post and Dorian Warren of the Center for Community Change. We will be back with Patrick Chovanek to talk about China. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from all sides. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. Stream all episodes of Left, Right, and Center and our companion show, All the President's Lawyers, at kcrw.com slash podcasts or from the KCRW app. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com join. Back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm your host, Josh Barrow. On the right is Megan McArdle, columnist at The Washington Post. On the left is Dorian Warren, president of the Center for Community Change. Last week, the National Counterintelligence and Surveillance Center released its assessment of foreign efforts to influence the presidential election. The report noted that various Russian-linked entities are trying to boost President Trump for re-election and undermine Joe Biden's candidacy. It also noted that China and Iran appear to prefer that Trump be defeated. A lot of Democrats have been critical of the way this assessment was rolled out, conflating China's largely overt influence efforts with the more covert tactics used by the Russians. But the China assessment is interesting in its own right. My view has been that Trump's tough pose with China has been largely an act, that he's fixated on the sale of agricultural products while failing to push China on more important American interests, and that the president has sought personally to flatter Xi Jinping and ignore his bad and worsening human rights record. So in light of that, why would China prefer that Trump not be reelected? To talk about that, Patrick Chovanek joins us now. Patrick is an economic advisor at Silvercrest Asset Management, and he's an adjunct professor at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. Formerly, he was a professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing. Hi, Patrick. Hello. Patrick, do you think it's true that China prefers a Biden presidency? And if so, why do they prefer it? So that's one assessment. And I think, first of all, you've got to say that when you ask what do people in China think um, about Trump, you know, it's like asking, what do Americans think about Trump? There's there's a wide range of views, and it's evolved over time. Uh, if you want to ask what the Chinese leadership thinks about Trump, I do think that they are very frustrated with the Trump administration. Now, you could say, if you were a Trump supporter, that that's because he's taken a really tough stand and that Biden would take a, an easier stand on China. You could alternately say that 
it's because they just don't see him as a reliable negotiator anymore, um, negotiating partner. So, you know, to some extent, um, it's in the eye of the beholder. I, I do think that the Chinese leadership has gone from the assumption that they could make a deal with Trump to the view that he's not really somebody who they can make a deal with. Did President Trump lose Hong Kong? We, we've seen in, in recent weeks China forced through this new national security law. They've been arresting pro-democracy activists. Is there something that the Trump administration, that the United States government could have done to protect Hong Kong's status, to hold China back there? I don't think Hong Kong was America's to lose um, in the sense that, you know, it's part of China. Um, we're not going to go to war to uh, to stop China from exerting its authority um, in Hong Kong, how it pleases. That that said, um, you know there are consequences to China ch- moving away from one country, two systems, destroying the foundation of what makes Hong Kong special and attract an attractive place to do business. And um, you know, I think a lot of people in Hong Kong have welcomed the Trump administration's hard stance towards China. At the same time. Trump himself has been, uh, you know, hasn't always spoken up for American values in the way that maybe, you know, previous presidents would have. So it's, you know, one thing to, to, to get back to kind of one of the questions that you raised is, is that, you know, how, how tough is Trump on China or on Russia or any other country? There seem to be two tracks in this, in this administration. There are people who work in the administration who tend to be, you know, very, very tough on China and want to push hardline policies. And then there's Trump. And Trump sort of varies from day to day. It's uh, He's very strong in his rhetoric, and he thinks it's very useful to be rhetorically tough on China. At the same time, uh, he seems to kind of like and admire Xi Jinping uh, and wants to do a deal with him if he can, and has been frustrated by his inability to, to kind of get them to do what he wants. So you know, I think you see the same thing with Russia, where there's there's two tracks. There's what Trump says, and there's what you know policymakers in the administration try to push until Trump, you know, pulls the rug out from under them. Uh, Megan, you you said on the show a few weeks ago that you, like American policymakers, underestimated the impact on U.S. workers from the China trade shock, and it, it sort of it, it seems to me like there's been an ongoing failure uh, in in a number of ways to understand and respond to China that predates Trump. Do do you see Joe Biden? being able to get a better handle on that than Obama and Bush and Clinton did before him? Um, I doubt it. <laughs> um, but, you know, I I remain hopeful. I think it's really hard to know until people get in. I mean, look at uh, when, when Trump was running, in some ways you would have thought he would have been much tougher on China than he was. I think it's hard to know until people get into office and they're confronted with all of the constituencies and the competing interests and the fact that there's other stuff they want to do um, so I, I think that very much remains to be seen. Um, but I think that it is certainly true. Um, and this is an insight, uh, that I take from Patrick, actually, who I am an avid follower of, um, that I, I think that we have kind of systematically mishandled, uh, our, our China relationship by being too complacent, uh, until Trump. But then we've just gone to this kind of flailing and making symbolic gestures and not really thinking strategically um, about the relationship. And I think that's something that Patrick noted the other day is that, you know, if you actually really want to go after China, you really want to lock them down, you really want to force them into a corner, what do you need? You need allies everywhere else. And instead of 
making China his priority and building up those alliances so that he could then isolate China, he went and shredded our alliances. So Germany doesn't care about what we say. You know, we, we, he's, he's done this with, with Korea, with Japan. He's, he's actually weakened the tools that we had to make China behave in ways that we think are better either for us or for the world or even just for the Chinese. Um, And that, I think, is one of the great tragedies of his presidency is that, in fact, he voiced concerns that I think should have been expressed earlier. I do not agree with all of the immigration and trade and so forth, but I certainly think there were real issues there that were short-weighted by elites who had, uh, you know, either ideological or personal interests in short-weighting them. Um, But... Trump, after voicing them, actually has has done very little to advance what the people who voted for him thought he was going to do. Patrick, you had a Twitter thread last month that I thought was really useful. You said that, that you're often asked, you know, you're critical of Trump's approach to China. What do you think he actually ought to do? And then you, and you proposed, you, you had 21 policy proposals that, that you think the U.S. should implement with China. I don't, let's not go through all 21, but can you can you give a, a little bit of a summary of, of what a more effective China policy would look like in your view? Well, I think what Megan said is exactly right. You know, um, China has evolved and the direction that China is heading in has evolved. If you went back 10 years ago or 20 years ago, people were a lot more optimistic and perhaps, and I think reasonably so for the prospects of, of China moving in a more cooperative direction with the United States. That has really changed under Xi Jinping. Um, a number of issues have emerged from China simply being more wealthy uh, and therefore more assertive. Um, so we have to adapt to that. And I think the question for the Biden administration is going to be, um, how do you shift gears from this flailing, very bellicose approach that the Trump administration has taken, not back to saying, well, these things aren't really an issue, let's just all get along, but saying, look, the you know, some of these things that Trump has responded to ineffectually in many ways, wrongheadedly in other ways, um, they're nonetheless real issues and they're not going away, whether it's the South China Sea or whether it's threats uh, to Taiwan or what's happening in Hong Kong or, or, or um, chronic trade imbalances between the United States and the rest of the world, not to mention China. IP theft, all kinds of issues. How do you bring more effective leverage on these issues, um, working with other countries, but also just thinking strategically about, you know, what is what is really a good thing for us to do? What's effective for us to do and what's not effective for us to do? And that was, you know, I, I outlined a couple of ideas that I think we have to play it by ear to use a Chinese phrase. Uh, this is how they describe reform is we have to cross the river by feeling the stones. And so there are going to be some things that we do that are going to turn out to be not very effective. We're going to have to turn it up, you know, turn pressure up a notch. Other things where we might have to dial it down a notch. But, um, you know, we have to be flexible. And I think that's the big question. And when you say, you know, when they say the Chinese favor Biden, you know, do they favor Biden because he thinks he's he's just going to be soft on China? That's one possibility. Um, The other possibility is that, you know, will be he'll have a much more effective uh, approach and maybe China won't like it so much. I'm trying to make heads or tails of why China might or might not support President Trump's reelection. There's evidence on both sides to suggest China would support him or not. I could see all the reasons why China wouldn't want uh, President Biden and why they would support Trump. He kind of just like 
outlines what his negotiating strategy is on Twitter all the time. He's kind of a unifier. Well, th- this gets into the issue of, you know, China's view on this or Xi Jinping's view on this is subjective. And so, you know, what the priorities that he's pushing right now for China and the way that he sees the world, it's not necessarily the way that previous Chinese leaders have or everyone in China is. He's in, now he's in charge. And so he gets to make those calls. Um, but I think it's you know important when we say China would prefer Biden rather than Trump, you know, that's not to say that they're right. <laughs> that's not to say that their assessment of the situation is correct in terms of what their interests are, or even what their their perception of what their true interests should be is correct. Patrick Chavanek is an economic advisor at Silvercrest Asset Management and is an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. Patrick, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. We've reached that time once again for our famed left, right, and center rants featuring pet peeves from across the political spectrum. Dorian Warren, what's on your mind? Well, history is going to remember what side you were in this momentous and chaotic moment. Either we're a democracy with rules of engagement we all accept, or we are not. Not 24 hours after Democratic nominee for President Joe Biden announced Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate, birtherism 2.0 immediately began. So as you might remember, birtherism 1.0 was the racist conspiracy theory that Barack Obama wasn't an American citizen and therefore not qualified for the presidency. That same argument is being made with Senator Harris. And let's be very clear. She's an American citizen like Barack Obama is. She's fully qualified to be vice president and possibly president. If you don't like her politics or ideas, that's totally fine. But when the right resorts to what Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson call the three R's, resentment, racialization, and rigging, it's because they're out of ideas and know they can't win. The GOP faces a demographic cliff, and their solution to keeping power is to define away the citizenship and voting rights of millions of people of color. White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow said it clearly and out in the open. Voting rights are liberal, left-wing wishless, and not our game. If he means the essence of any democracy is voting rights, then yes, it's been a wishlist of the left for centuries. The silence we hear from the GOP isn't fear of Trump, it's adherence to a strategy to mark those that are not white as other and non-citizens. History is going to remember what side you were on in this moment. Let's put a stop to this nonsense of birtherism. Megan McArdle, what's your rant? Since the end of July, COVID testing has dropped by 17% in the United States. That's actually a result of policies. States are attempting to contract the number of tests they do in order to improve throughput rates because, as many of listeners may know, um, at the, in July, we often had people waiting 7 to 10 days, which is next to useless for a test. The, the problem is we actually need lots of tests. We don't just need uh, ones that come back in a timely fashion. There are tests that can be done more quickly and produced in larger scale, but the FDI won't approve them because they're not as accurate as the tests we're doing. Um, but if we have to make trade-offs, and clearly we do, then the trade-off we should be making is getting as many tests as possible, doing them constantly in order to overcome the inaccuracy problem, rather than letting people who have COVID walk around not knowing it. 
For my rant, Trump supporters like to say that while Biden may be ahead in the polls, Trump has more enthusiasm on his side, and the implications that will lead to a better turnout result for the president. And indeed, if you ask voters, are they enthusiastic about voting for the candidate they intend to vote for, they're more likely to say that if they're Trump voters than if they're Biden voters. But there's a new poll question out from the Pew Research Center that I think may shed more light on who could have an enthusiasm problem this fall. They asked supporters of each candidate whether they would be angry if the other candidate won, and 61% of Biden supporters say they'd be angry if Donald Trump is reelected. Only 37% of Trump supporters say they would be angry if Joe Biden is elected. In this era of negative partisanship, one of the most important things that motivates voters is fear and disgust and anger toward the candidate on the other side. Trump generates that like no president I've ever seen in my lifetime. Joe Biden does not. This is a significant electoral advantage for Joe Biden. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank Dorian Warren, Megan McArdle, Indy Dutta and Patrick Shavanik. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Fay. Our technical director is J.C. Swadek. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. I'm Josh Barrow. Thanks for joining us, and tune in next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 